The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. everybody once again to the talking space podcast this is episode 214 for the week of april 18th 2010 and joining me today are gene mcculka welcome gene and uh, good evening to you too sir how you doing today i'm doing great thanks welcome as well gina harley hey sorry we got a lot to talk about tonight oh you're not kidding and welcome as well mark ratterman i'm ready let's go i think we all are let's get right into the topic and I have a feeling everybody out there can guess what the topic is going to be about. Rabbits. No, I'm just joking. The big thing is that on Thursday, April 15th, President Barack Obama made a trip to the Kennedy Space Center, the first time since President Bill Clinton back in 1998. He went down there and he made a speech proposing his future for NASA, which included possible trips to asteroids and a goal to get into Martian orbit with humans within his lifetime. So what are your opinions on President Obama's speech, on any aspects of it? Okay, well, it so happens here that I am my formerly um, chocolate-stained fingers, since I was devouring some chocolate before coming on here. Um, I have a copy of the speech that I've uh, tried to interpret here. I mean, not all, there, not all everything is bad in here, but there's a lot of things that I'm still sort of, sort of scratching my head on. Um, well, for instance, not, you know, not splashing the space station, um, in 2015, um, and going out to 2020, you know, a lot of the stuff in here is stuff that we've heard before, but, uh, there, there's still a lot I'm, I'm still sort of scratching my head about, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into this in a little bit, but, uh, um, like for instance, uh, we're talking about, uh, investing $3 billion to conduct research into a heavy lift vehicle. Um, uh, which is all well and good, but I'm not too sure exactly what we, what our advanced plans are for this heavy lift vehicle. They're talking about, uh, having the vehicle ready by, I guess the design in place by 2015 and, um, it can, for construction to occur right after that, but I'm not exactly too sure what its mission is since, you know, since Constellation is now trashed. We were going to be going back to the moon. Now we're not anymore. Whether whether or not this is going to be used as a as a platform to loft a still undesigned um, new piloted vehicle um, to either the asteroids or, or or further is is another story. But I'm not exactly too sure what what this HLV's mission will be. The, it's very uh, sketchy in the uh, description that they have about it. Just looking at it. Uh, in his speech, it talks about 
a vehicle to efficiently send, quote-unquote, into orbit the crew capsules, propulsion systems, and large quantities of supplies needed to reach deep space. Right. Uh, the other thing, too, is the, the resurrection of the Orion capsule. Um, I'm not exactly all that sure what they're, you know, why that was. Either it was to just satisfy certain factions or whatever, but um, the way, and, and forgive me if I'm, I'm misinterpreting this, um, Orion will not uh, launch um, any U.S. citizens into space, but it will ensure their return from the International Space Station. It will essentially be used as a cargo vehicle to uh, send new cargo to the International Space Station, but once it's there, apparently it will still have a pressurized capability um, to, send, to, to bring crews back if, you know, in an emergency lifeboat situation. I'm I'm still sort of scratching my head on that one too. I mean, shoot, if the if you're going to have the thing pressurized uh, with the capability of of, of of bringing human beings home, how about you know getting U.S. citizens back on onto that thing and into and into space that way? At least we'll have our own our own little you know ferry system to still get get U.S. citizens back and forth to a space station that we've built. I mean, I understand that we don't have a, um, you know, uh, an, an, EEL, an EELV um, to, for the Orion to, to sit on top of, but how about building one so it can? I got to say I'm dumbfounded that if the Orion is truly only going to be resurrected to be as used as a, a lifeboat from the space station, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, it should be used as transport to there, but I have a feeling it is because um, we already have a deal or agreed upon contract with the Russian Space Agency. So we can go ahead and build a capsule that will take our astronauts to orbit, but we've already basically committed to paying for X amount of seats or X amount of seats over a period of time on Soyuz capsules. So maybe part of the reason why we're not developing it for launch or launching astronauts is because we already have our hands tied through an agreement we made years ago when we decided to stop flying the shuttle. Yeah, but, but yeah, now, now that uh, at $55 million a seat, though. But it's done. It's a done deal. We have a signed contract at that rate. Yeah, but now they've been changing the price as the monopoly becomes more sealed. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I can... think that my guess is that price increase was probably in the cards long ago. If I was the Russians, I'd cancel the contract, raise the price, and offer to re, uh, re, restart a new one. Right, but then again, that puts NASA out to dry. And the one thing with Obama's heavy lift vehicle is that it's supposed to go at least two years earlier than the one that the Bush administration had in 2015. If they could just man rate that, if they can man rate it for re-entry, why can't they just man rate it for launch? Yeah, but, you know, and again, you know, from what I understand, uh, Lori Garver uh, has indicated that um, Orion uh, will not be uh, used for any type of exploration beyond low Earth orbit, so um, I'm then wondering... Then what will use to go beyond Earth? Low Earth orbit to That's again, an asteroid or again. Mars, which he said we'll probably do by 2030. A, a yet still, you know, undesigned, undreamt of vehicle that will probably sit on top of this heavy lift vehicle. So, 
you know, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm still kind of sort of scratching my head on this one, but okay. The other one too, uh, which, and now this is the, this is the, the passage too that, that really, really caused a lot of buzz on Twitter and a, a lot of buzz everywhere, everywhere else. And I don't know whether, whether or not it was misinterpreted. Um, sorry, I believe you have a clip. Yes, we do. This is exactly what he said. Early in the next decade, a set of crewed flights will test and prove the systems required for exploration beyond low Earth orbit. And by 2025, we expect new spacecraft designed for long journeys to allow us to begin the first ever crewed missions beyond the moon into deep space. So we'll start. We'll start by sending astronauts to an asteroid for the first time in history. By the mid-2030s, I believe we can send humans to orbit Mars and return them safely to Earth. And a landing on Mars will follow. And I expect to be around to see it. Okay. Um, I'm still sort of scratching my head on this one. Everybody that I... Some, some folks I've talked to um, out there have, have said, Oh, wow, you know, this sounds... You know, this is... We're going to Mars. That didn't sound like, to me, a firm commitment like, you know we heard back on May 25th, 1961, you know, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth, um, that, that President Kennedy had said. And to me, this, this says, this is, this sounded more like a wish list than a, than a commitment. You know, uh, everybody that I've talked to, um, defined that portion of the Obama speech in a similar fashion to the Kennedy speech. And I'm like, I didn't hear that. If, if somebody has heard that, you know, you know, please set me, set me right. But I, 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 I don't interpret it that way. I interpreted interpret the president basically dictating, um, Norm Augustine's flexible path. Cause if you look at that, that's what they're talking about. Well, he, he articulated it. He did. He said, you know, a, a group of highly qualified and objective panel members have looked at all of these options. And he really put a lot of trust into that um, Augustine committee, and he should have because that was what it was designed to do. I'm not too thrilled about the flexible path option myself. I really am, as space shuttle nears its end, I'm really getting very upset by it because – it's such an elegant flying machine, and we've proven now that we really can't fly it safely. Of course there's a risk. There's always a risk. That's what space travel is. Space flight is always incurs risk when you do it. But there's, you know, it's sad to me that with an increase of the NASA budget, we can't continue shuttle even just for a little bit to close the gap. But that being said, I don't think the president went out there to try to recreate the essence or the romance of Kennedy's speech because I still think there's way too many unknowns. Even in the 60s, maybe 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 it was reckless of John Kennedy and he didn't even live long enough to see it. So maybe he didn't really know if we could get to the moon and maybe he just said it because we were in a space race with the Russians. There's no space race right now. Yeah, the Chinese are talking about going to the moon. We've taken ourselves out of the race. We're not going back to the moon. So until there is some sort of like rah-rah, wave the flag patriotism, we need to get back to the moon or we need to get to Mars before the Russians get there. 
all I'm saying is we we still don't have a goal yet. I didn't I didn't really see one here, and I I, I we're looking at the critical path as essentially the roadmap, if if I'm not mistaken. But we're I don't know. Well, I think it's, there is a goal. He's talking about an asteroid. He's talking about Mars. He's given a loose time frame. I mean, I, I think those are the goals. I mean, he's got a goal of the heavy launch vehicle in 2015. He's got a goal of wanting to be on Mars by 2030. He's got a goal of building this heavy launch craft. But you see, I didn't interpret the, the, the 2030, you know, we're going, going to be on Mars by, by, by 2020, by 2030, 2035. I didn't see that as, as, you know, a goal. I saw that as a possible wish list. I didn't see that as a goal. Well, why do we want to set goals that maybe we can't reach? I think he's being sensible. I mean, there's so many problems with us trying to get to Mars right now. I mean, who knows if we'll have them solved by then? I'd like to think so, but there's no guarantee of that. Right, but with what you just said, it was the same thing with Kennedy. Again, he didn't know if we could do it. We were just barely getting started with the Mercury program, and we hadn't even thought of Apollo, and Gemini was still in its very early stages, and... I don't think we knew the same thing then, but like you were saying before, back then the politics were there to start the race. Right. I think Kennedy had the advantage of getting away with being cavalier because we were in a space race. I think President Obama, in a very tough economy, knowing that potentially a lot of Americans are going to question, why are we funding this? I don't have a job. My mortgage is underwater. I can't afford even, you know, the basics to have a decent lifestyle why are we spending this money i think he's being very sensible in the current political and economic climate that we're in i think that's what it is he can't afford to be cavalier like kennedy you know the 60s we just came out of quite an economic boom post-world war ii america was riding high we were a manufacturing economy you know we were supplying the world with a, a lot of goods that we were exporting, he he had absolutely every ability to be as cavalier as he was that day. Obama doesn't have that luxury, and I think he's being smart, shrewd, and sensible about how he's presenting it. Um, I'll I'll get getting back to um, the demise of the of the moon program. To quote him, quote Now I understand that some believe that we should attempt to return to moon, return to the surface of the moon first, as previously planned. Um, but I just have to say pretty bluntly here, we've been there before. It seems to me, too, that um, you know, the idea is, well, we've been there, done that. Sorry, I believe we got a letter from a listener on this one, didn't we? I was just about to say, that was a pretty good leeway into this letter that we received. And indeed, yeah. we did receive a letter to our email, which is mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. And it was from Alex Schimp, who is Schimpster on Twitter, S-H-I-M-P-S-T-E-R. And he brought up a few points. He said, while I agree for the most part with what was said, especially the parts about needing to properly fund NASA, I have two problems, which is really three. And I think we should actually take a look at each of these individually. The first one, he says, what about the gap? The president said that we should have a design picked for a heavy lift vehicle by 2015, and we would focus on commercial applications for LEO, such as SpaceX. But for U.S. human spaceflight to rely on the Russians at total contract price of $335 million, no less than 55.8 million per trip? Well, I know that the space shuttle will retire after the next three scheduled flights. Why not, in the absence of no alternative for down mass and ability to remove replacement components like the shuttle can, 
extend the program to two flights a year. Good question was brought up there in terms of the shuttle. Why not continue to fly it about two flights a year and extend it? Okay, well, it was explained to me by someone that regardless, if we were going to continue shuttle after um, the September flight, the shuttle missions, even though maybe they could visit the space station, they would be science missions only because we have a contract inked already with the Russians that we have to, that they are supplying seats to the ISS for American astronauts. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I guess it's done. And that's what the two countries and space agencies have agreed on. They still can dock to the ISS even with the contract as well? I think they can dock and visit. I don't think there's any issues with docking and visiting, but it would be a science mission. Right, because even right now they don't do crew changes. That's right. The last one was, what, two or or three flights ago. Sorry, he he, he mentions, I believe the the next point, he he did mention the, 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 the moon missions. Right. right. As he says, the second point, I actually got a laugh at while watching the program. Obama's remarks to this, in my mind, equate to been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. And there's nothing more to see here. And then he goes on to mention that even with the results of LRO and LCROSS, we already know that there's frozen water on the moon and other resources. He says these same resources could also be used here on Earth to promote new energy sources. You see, again, I think I think LCROSS and LRO and, and are, are, are going to surprise us, and I think we're you know turning our back on, on on the nearest neighbor may be a bad idea. I mean, I realize some people have the idea of you know been there, done that, but you know that, that's that's like a foreigner coming over here, a foreign a foreigner coming over here and say, oh yeah, I've been to the United States, and the only thing he's seen is Elizabeth, New Jersey. You know, so um, to me, it, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, LRO and LCROSS are, are proven that there's still a lot more to, to see over here and there's a lot more to find. And to just go ahead and shun the, the lunar surface as, as even, even just as a training ground for Mars, um, I think is wrong. But, again, that's just my thoughts. So do you think it would be a missed opportunity then if all of a sudden, a couple of years down the line, while we're still trying to get to an asteroid or to Mars, all of a sudden Russia or China... Uh, plant a flag on the moon. I think it'll be a little bit of egg on our face, but um, you know, a lot of people are going to say, "Well, we were there before you, so big deal." Um, so that might be the mentality. But I, I kind of wonder too. You know, as somebody had, uh, this weekend had mentioned to me, um, "What if uh, Spain had said, okay, fine, you know, we've been to America, done that. You know, let, let's do something else.'" I think if we go back to the moon, and I would love to go. I think. I think, uh, as you said, Gene, there's so much more to see. We have so much more science and technology right now than we did in the late 60s, early 70s, that we could do so much more with while we were on the surface. We probably could build some sort of modular moon base. Um, We probably could do this in collaboration with other countries like China, like India, and so forth. But um, I think we've mastered the technique to arrive safely and return safely from the moon and we've done that with chemical rockets and i think it is abundantly clear that the direction that bolden obama and uh, the augustine committee want us to take is this new propulsion i think if our goal is to go back to the moon and start setting up a base and maybe having a permanent presence i think maybe we'll be stuck there for the next 30 or 40 years again like shuttle, like space station, 
and be there without ever really having the incentive to go out and develop new propulsion to get any further. I mean, with the global um, shared space community now, I can't imagine China going to the moon and not really trying to share some of that globally, um, what they learn, what they bring back. Um, but it's you know. China we're talking about. Right, but, you know, I, I, they're going to need help. And I, I, I know that um, Bolden and China have already been speaking to each other. So I, I look at it as if we go back to the moon, we have no incentive to go anywhere else. We'll be stuck there. It'll be in 30 or 40 years, setting up a lunar base, ferrying astronauts back and forth. We have now two satellites. One's the moon and one's the space station. And I think it'll be a continuation of that. If we ever want to go farther, we need a reason to really build the rocket power to get there. All I'm saying is that, that the moon still affords us the possibility of testing our, our metal a little bit to learn how to, how to live off the land a little bit and also possibly to go ahead and fulfill some of these new propulsion things that you folks that, that folks are talking about. I mean, you've got the possibility of, of a lot more water there than initially thought. And apparently, according to the L-Cross data, it's enough to, to be sustainable over there. So, um, yeah, you've got the possibility of, of you know, using hydrogen fuel to, to get, you know, to get to places and to do it not within Earth's gravity well, but, to, uh, but from the moon, to having all of your, your launches from there. So where you don't have to worry about Earth's gravity well. So you're talking about you know, doing things a lot cheaper. So, um, but that's also, true. that's absolutely true. But so much, I mean, everything that goes to the moon has to come from the earth. So we'll have to move it twice. Right? Not, necessar it's gonna, not necessarily, but not the hardware itself, not you know, again, not necessarily, not all of it, not necessarily probably, you know, the idea is to learn what's there to possibly go ahead and harness what's there. I'm not saying, you know, again, I'm, all I'm saying is, is using the moon as a place to just learn to hone our skills a little bit and, and then you use it as a possible jumping off, off point for, for Mars. Now, his third point that he makes in the letter, and his last, is personally my favorite. He says, finally, the part that really strikes me as stupid was to say that while we have laid out this new vision for NASA that includes manned missions to Mars by 2030, that the next administration decides to slash this plan and put his out, uh, and put out his or her own vision, do we then hear, oh, well, here's my vision, and end up going through this every four to eight years? Bush's plan may have been unsustainable given the current economic situation. However, it is important at this time that we devise a plan and do something to ensure it stays in place through to fruition. That's, again, what we've what it, uh, I, I believe we alluded to earlier um, with with the idea of going back to Mars, and I'm still sort of scratching my head on that one, but you know, uh, and then another administration can come in in four years or eight years and say, you know, uh, I don't like this, and we design the whole darn thing. So there's no guarantees in life. <laughs> and, and that's the problem we have here in this country, where um, you know, space by its, and, and I'm, I'm going to quote uh, Dr. John Logsdon, but space by its definition is a presidential issue. The president has to go ahead, set the policy, and, and say, this is, a, this is what we're going to do, this is our goal. And um, 
and then get buy-in from Congress to, to, to execute it. And that that makes it kind of difficult to go ahead and do these long-range things because an, uh, you know, another administration could come in, pull the plug, just like this administration pulled the plug on Constellation here. And uh, which, again, the jury's still out on whether whether or not that's so, that, that was a bad thing or not. But, but another administration could come in and pull the plug on this on this whole thing and say, well, I don't like this, and, and set it on another course. So it, it's it's awfully difficult to go ahead and, and have extraordinarily long range plans um, with with our system. It's just uh, unless unless the administration coming in sort of has buy in on on this plan. I agree. To be perfectly honest, I can only imagine how f- much further into the solar system and in terms of exploration not just manned, but unmanned as well. It could have happened had NASA been able to choose their own destination and their own funding. But once you have to make it go through 20 different levels, you lose everything that you want. Everyone puts in their say in it, and the main goal is lost. And that's, I think, what keeps happening as the presidency changes. Yeah, I, I think the, what, what the most frustrating part of this whole plan is that we will be still stuck in low-Earth orbit now for a grand total of 55 five zero years and we've been so far stuck in low earth orbit for 40 years I'm, I'm, I'm counting Skylab in that and um, now we're gonna be stuck in there for at least another 10 so we've been sort of puttering around low earth orbit now for you know it'll be a grand total of 50 years and to me that, that that's that's just a wasted well I don't want to say wasted but that's the only word that comes to mind. Uh, opportunity. We could be doing so many other things. Okay, now once again, thank you to Alex Schimp for sending us that letter and giving us those discussion questions. Um, I guess the, the other, the one other thing I want to talk about about the speech here, um, and this was brought up again also I saw uh, on Twitter, and it, it was something that kind of made me scratch my head a little bit. So I'm proposing in part because of strong lobbying by Bill and by Suzanne, as well as Charlie. I'm proposing a $40 million initiative led by a high-level team from the White House, NASA, and other agencies to develop a plan for regional economic growth and job creation. And I expect this plan to reach my desk by August 15th. It's an effort that will help prepare this already skilled workforce for new opportunities in the space industry and beyond. Okay, now my question is this. This was apparently targeted for Central Florida, which really, really depends on, on, on NASA and the Space Coast to go ahead and, and, and create jobs and so on. Now, with all of this going, it's, you know, the plug is being pulled and a lot of jobs are leaving. A lot of space jobs will be at, out of Central Florida, at least for a little while. Um, what is going to go ha- happen to the uh, community over in uh, Clear Lake in uh, in Texas and other NASA centers, maybe Marshall, um, the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama? Um, I'm also thinking of uh, you know, possibly the Machute facility, which is also you know pretty much shutting down um, because of uh, you know they, they, they were. Their primary responsibility was was the, the construction of the external tank. Um, what about all of that? What's going to happen to these people? Is there going to be any type of uh, 
you know, similar $40 million project that's going to go ahead and help these folks out? Or is this $40 million project going to go ahead and, and be disseminated not just in Florida, but throughout the system? So, you know, what is it? Right. He continues to talk about with everything that's going on with NASA, that it's all about job creation. And in that way, it he's definitely trying to show job creation, but based on what he said, I couldn't exactly tell exactly if he meant Florida specifically or all of the NASA centers. I mean, it definitely seemed aimed more towards Florida, but and if it was aimed just towards Florida, that's really not supporting job growth across the United States and all the other NASA facilities. If it is, then I stand corrected. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to, I mean, much to the, you know, the, the plan does say that it that will create 2,500 jobs along the Space Coast area within the next few years. So, um, you know, but I don't know if that makes up for the fact that there's going to be a heck of a lot of people out of work as a result of the shuttle uh, shutting down. And uh, um, what is going to be done to, to help not only those folks, but, you know, the folks that may be cut from from uh, the Johnson Space Flight Center payroll and possibly the Marshall Space Flight Center payroll or any other center that will be affected by uh, by the shuttle shutdown. I mean, not all was bad in this speech. I mean, the, the, the closing was was really, really, really not, you know, I, I was I was just saying, well, it's about time that the U.S. president said this. So, do you have a clip of that? Yes, I do. Thank and you. here's what it was. And I'll close by saying this. I know that some Americans have asked a question that's particularly apt on tax day. Why spend money on NASA at all? Why spend money solving problems in space when we don't uh, lack for problems to solve here on the ground? And obviously our country is still reeling from the worst economic turmoil we've known in generations. We have massive structural deficits that have to be closed in the coming years. But you and I know this is a false choice. We have to fix our economy. We need to close our deficits, but for pennies on the dollar, the space program has fueled jobs and entire industries. For pennies on the dollar, the space program has improved our lives, advanced our society, strengthened our economy, and inspired generations of Americans. And I have no doubt that NASA can continue to fulfill this role. Yeah, I mean, not all. I mean, it was it was refreshing to hear U.S. U.S. presidents say that. It's been a long time that since since I've heard. Somebody, you know, uh, somebody in the White House say that, you know, just for pennies, NASA's returning um, so much. So it was, it was, it was kind of refreshing to hear that. I don't, even, I don't even think uh, uh, the previous um, uh, individual that uh, called uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue home uh, had said that, and uh, it was just, it was just good to hear. To be perfectly honest. The one thing that it seems like we've been supporting the most on this podcast is getting the word out about NASA and showing exactly what NASA has done. And we've been complaining a lot how people aren't showing them, you know, what NASA really does for them. It wasn't going into exact detail, but at least the president brought that to America's attention, that nobody else that I know of, even us of a majority, not all, but a majority of uh, the people that enjoy space on Twitter it seems that they didn't really mention it. At least President Obama brought it up and brought it to the public's attention. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it, it was just, uh, as I've said it before, I mean, it was really, really refreshing to hear a U.S. president, a sitting U.S. president say that. And uh, so it, the, the speech wasn't all bad. But uh, there, there's a lot in here I don't agree with, but, 
know, there's a lot in here I do. And, and that was one of the points that I, I, I really applaud uh, President Obama for saying. Yeah, I agree, Sawyer. I, I, I think it was a, a bold move of Obama to um, articulate the value that NASA brings to not only the country but the world. Um, I think a lot of people spoke out this week um, that normally don't about this subject, and one of them being Neil Armstrong, who never says anything publicly, really. Um, he joined forces with Jim Lovell and Gene Cernan, all commanders in the Apollo program, and actually called the Obama-NASA plan devastating in a letter that they wrote and co-signed. And, um, you know, Neil Armstrong, who is publicly very quiet, um, anything he says really speaks volumes. So I don't know if you saw that letter or if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, I did. There was also another letter that was issued, um, I guess, by, very, by by several astronauts and, uh, and also um, a few uh, former flight directors, um, Glenn Lunny being one. Um, I think, uh, uh, if, if I'm not, I may be mistaken, but um, I thought uh, Jane Krantz was part of that as well, and I believe uh, George Mueller, who was a uh, past past uh, associate administrator uh, also signed it along with um, Paul Weitz, Frank Borman, Dick Gordon, Charlie Duke, Jake Garn, uh, Joe Kerwin, Jim McDivitt, Alan Bean, Al Warden, Michael Griffin, uh, past administrator, uh, Bob Crippen, Vance Brand, and uh, Chris Kraft and Walter Cunningham. Um, they also said that uh, this was this was not the way to go, um, and uh, essentially, and I will quote from the letter, canceling NASA's human space operations after 50 years of unparalleled achievement um, makes, uh, you know, um, makes an, any type of objective impossible. Um, I think um, uh, everybody's concern is the fact that there is no replacement sitting in the wings for the shuttle. Um, I mean, Orion is sort of a half-baked replacement right now. Um, Why do you think that all of these very key and critical um, faces of NASA waited so long to really the last second to bring this up publicly? We all knew there was going to be a gap between shuttle and Constellation if and whenever that was going to... I mean, why do you think they waited until now? To discuss I this, I don't think it. They, well, here was the deal. We we knew that there was a five year. I believe it was a five year gap between Apollo and shuttle. Um, but we knew shuttle was waiting. You know, we knew shuttle was under construction, um, and that it was waiting in the wings, and uh, it was re- It would be ready to go. Um, after shuttle, there really isn't anything waiting in the wings. Well, if I can just read basically the summary of the Armstrong, Lovell, and Cernan letter, it says, For the United States, the leading spacefaring nation for nearly half a century to be without carriage to low Earth orbit and with no human exploration capability to go beyond Earth orbit for an indeterminate time into the future, 
destines our nation to become one of second or even third-rate stature. While the president's plan envisage humans yes. traveling away from Earth and perhaps toward Mars at some time in the future, the lack of developed rockets and spacecraft will assure that ability will not be available for many years. Wow. Can... That, that's, that's stunning. They also seem to be mad about our wasted, our current $10, billion, 10 plus billion dollars in investment in Constellation. And equally important, we have lost the many years required to recreate the equivalent of what we will have discarded. So what I'm, I'm led to believe, and, and from what everybody has been, been yelling and screaming to me about, is that Constellation was unsustainable. And that it was just gobbling up money, and to continue to do that would be throwing good money after bad, if I'm, not, if, if I'm, if I'm correct on that. That's right. That's what I've heard. Um, from multiple <sighs> sources. Yeah, so, um, I mean, but, but by the same token, too, I'm told that, you know, and this is actually coming from, from the Augustine Commission itself, it would, would cost about $3 billion to put, to put the ship right over there. And yet we're spending, we're going to spend $6 billion, and we are basically cutting the legs out from underneath the Constellation program. So something just doesn't ring right here. I, I'm I'm not you know again that's 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 a this is something I'm still sort of you know scratching my head about. I will say the the let the the uh, the letter I'm looking at dated April 12th and ends the following. Um, too many men and women have worked too hard to sacrifice too much to achieve Americans' preeminence in space, only to see that effort needlessly thrown away. We urge you to demonstrate the vision and determination necessary to keep our nation at the forefront of human exploration with ambitious goals and the proper resources to see them through. This is not the time to abandon the promise of, of the space frontier for lack of will or an unwillingness to pay the price. Close quote. And that's, you know, that to me, that's... Again, this is once more saying, okay, fine, you know, you're going to go ahead and turn low Earth orbit over to all these commercial entities, fine and dandy, but you know, what's NASA going to do in the meantime? And we still don't really know all that, all that much. I'd say that's a very interesting point to end the conversation on. Again, you can always send us your comments on that. You know exactly where you can contact us. Now, Gina, I believe you just recently had quite the experience down in Florida. Am I correct? You are correct. Yes. Uh, Friday night, April 9th, I was an attendee at Kennedy Space Center's um, celebration of the Apollo 13 crew. This was a fundraiser for the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. And um, I was very, very thrilled to have the opportunity to have a formal portrait taken with um, Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Gene Kranz. And um, we kind of got rushed through line because there were, you know, several people that were in line to have their photo taken as part of the ticket for the event. And after that, I boarded a bus. And um, lo and behold, I, I was sort of oblivious as I was getting on the bus because, you know, I got the camera and glass of wine in my hand. Everyone was getting on with wine. And I happened to sit down right behind General Tom Stafford and his wife. And I uh, met a um, very nice person from 
London who was traveling um, all the way to Florida. He came for uh, STS-131 and this event, so he was just lucky that they both fell within a reasonable period of time, so he was able to attend both. And uh, we had a lovely conversation as we were led um, around an up-close-and-personal tour of uh, Launchpad 39B, which is where Apollo 13 had launched from. And we um, were very lucky to have Charlie Duke, Apollo 16 moonwalker, as our tour guide. And he was great. He was a little awkward at first. I don't think he was too comfortable. He was standing up with his back to the windshield of the bus with the PA system. And um, at a couple of points, him and Tom Stafford were sort of bickering about which launch pads uh, were used for which flights, which was funny. But um, on the bus, Fred Gregory, shuttle astronaut, Bob Crippen, uh, Al Warden, um, Apollo 15, command module pilot were all on the bus as well. And uh, it was just, it was a great atmosphere. There was a lot of other VIPs on the bus. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I think they paid big money to sponsor the event and they were on this bus. And we arrived finally at the launch pad and we took a slow, long look at it and could see the flame trench and the slide wires and the bunker. And Charlie Duke had some funny stories about his launch on Apollo 16 and how his um, heartbeat was like 130 beats per minute. And uh, I guess the flight surgeon called up and commented on it and wanted to check on him. So had a quick chat or through the Capcom about it. And um, Charlie said, well, how's John doing? John Young, of course, the commander. This is now his... um, Oh, I guess his uh, second ride on a Saturn V and his fourth space flight overall. His heart rate was a very cool 70 beats per minute. So um, a lot of people chuckled over that story. But he was talking about the blockhouse and in a way really kind of how absurd that if the Saturn V was going to blow up on the launch pad, these astronauts were so were, were trained to get on the slide wire shoot across this, you know, the field of the launch pad very quickly at a high rate of speed, bounce into a basket, get out of this harness and run into the block, the blockhouse that was built to withstand a serious explosion. So um, some of the other astronauts and him were debating exactly how long of, um, I think they said they had about 30 days of fuel and uh, food and supplies stored in the blockhouse. I'm not exactly sure why they needed to be there that long, but, um, that, that's what, that, uh, yeah, that, that's what they were talking about. Um, but the launch pad is super impressive, very close up. Um, and it's unfortunate that it's apparently its days are rather numbered, but we eventually left the launch pad area, went back over to the Saturn five center, which if you visit Kennedy space center and you get the tour bus over to the Saturn five, Saturn five center, you enter in a, um, a mock launch firing room. And this firing room was basically launch control for Apollo 8. All of the consoles and um, all of the, the technicians and engineers' jackets that they wore, everything was moved to replicate exactly the way it was for Apollo 8 into this new area where it's forever memorialized. So you see three or four rows of consoles and uh, different jackets like uh, North American, IBM, 
Lockheed on the backs of the chairs that the technicians apparently wore during the launch. And here Gene Kranz addressed the audience, and he talked about, you know, the days of Apollo and, uh, you know, how he never for a minute envisioned he wasn't going to get those astronauts home. Um, it was a very, very um, upbeat, uh, interesting talk. He, you know, talked really about um, the forthrightness of all of the NASA engineers, the mission managers, the astronauts themselves, and really everybody that played such a critical and key role into the success of getting those astronauts home. Um, then they ran the little movie that you would see if you were on the Kennedy Space Center tour. They run through the, the launch of Apollo 8, but the end of it is Jim Lovell talking. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I finally went, got to the moon on Apollo 13, but haha, that's another story, and that's how the movie ends. Then we entered into the Saturn V Center where um, there was a very lovely buffet, dinner buffet set up, different stations um, under the first stage of the rocket. Um, seating was not reserved, so I got close uh, enough to be able to mill around and meet some of the dignitaries that were there. I talked to Bob Crippen for about four or five minutes. He was wonderful. I met Gene Kranz for the first time. He was such uh, a gentle, um, sincere human being, nothing like the gruff exterior that um, is portrayed in either the legend that surrounds him or in the Hollywood version of him. And, um, you know, he, he introduced himself to me. He wanted to know who I was, where I was from, what I did, and why I was here. And he seemed to treat everybody in line. That I mean, there was a horde around him trying to get to him. And I think he genuinely wanted to take, you know, a minute or two with every person that was trying to meet him and have a photo taken with him. Um, I was able to talk to Fred Hayes again. Um, he was wonderful. He seemed a little overwhelmed at the time. I know he's not a fan of the movie Apollo 13, by the way he was portrayed, and on huge screens, um, I think in two or three locations in Saturn V. They were, of course, running the the movie Apollo 13, so that was kind of humorous. Um, oh, I talked to John McBride. I met him. I was able. I met him also at the Yuri's night party the next night at the Astronaut Hall of Fame. But the the final part of the evening, which was wonderful, was at the Lunar Theater in the Saturn V. Um, they did a panel discussion, so we were all brought in, um, sort of led down that direction of the building with dessert, brought into the Lunar Theater where Bob Cabana made some remarks. He kicked off the program and talked really how he idolized these these astronauts when he was a younger you know younger naval pilot, and he had no idea someday he much less he would be an astronaut and then in the position he was in that evening to be introducing them, um, he had some very humble and, uh, you know, insightful things to say. He turned the mic over to Al Warden, who sort of emceed the panel. Dis he did emcee the panel discussion, which included uh, Fred Hayes, Jim Lovell, um, Gene Kranz, and Charlie Duke, who, as you know, Charlie Duke is the astronaut that exposed Ken Mattingly, supposedly, to a potential measles attack, because he was on the backup crew of Apollo 13. So 
they talked quite a bit about that. They talked quite a bit about Jack Swigert. They paid much reverence to him throughout the night and a few jokes that he's probably um, in the cosmos somewhere with his five girlfriends and they're putting the gas <laughs> in the spaceship. Um, but, you know, it was just, it was, it was just really a thoughtful, um, well thought out, they didn't, they, they didn't have to go into the details of the whole story. You know, you know the story about building the, you know, the air scrubbers. I mean, they didn't really talk about that. They talked in sort of generalities of the mission. They talked quite a bit about, um, you know, what kind of a person Jack Swigert was, in addition to, you know, all the stories you hear about the wild swinging bachelor. Um, they also even um, said that, I, you know, you know that he was elected to Congress and couldn't serve because he died. But I had no idea that they had actually sent someone to his bedside in the hospital and sworn him in before he had passed away. So he died actually as a congressman. Wow. Um, I didn't but, know, you know Yeah, there was lots of little tidbits like that that they discussed. But Gene Kranz and his interaction with the guys and Charlie Duke talking about how he was in a simulator while they were in space and Charlie Duke figured they were goners and he just said it, you know, he said, I, I didn't think I'd ever see these guys again. Um, but and how they all just, you know, he was basically at mission control. Like, you know, he was awake for 36 hours straight and how they all just pulled together as a team and NASA's best resolve and our finest hour. And, you know, Al Warden asked Gene Krantz, so did you ever say, Failure is not a problem, and he said, nope, and he talked about really just how, you know, Ron Howard and the writers of the Apollo 13 movie thought that would be a, a good line to share in, you know, in the movie, so mm. um, it, was, it, was a, it was a fantastically interactive night. The astronauts were very approachable. Um, it was just a horde to get to them, so you sort of had to pick your battles. I had, I've met Jim Lovell both three or four times before. So I was just grateful to have my portrait taken with him. And I kind of, you know, pursued other people to speak with, but it was really, really a great night and a great fundraiser for a great cause, the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. Um, they've given away actually millions of dollars in money to, um, I believe graduate and undergraduate students who are science and engineering students only at specific colleges they work with. So, and when a student receives the award, actually an astronaut travels to the college and hand, hands them the check personally. Wow. Uh, uh, Gina, just, I, I just have three questions for you. One, this, I wasn't really too thrilled with the way Jack Schweiger was portrayed in the movie either. Um, mm -hmm. He was sort of portrayed as, you know, just somebody that, you know, this, this, you know, this, this rookie that was just a temporary insert you know, it was just a, basically a Band-Aid, whereas uh, Schweikert was one of the uh, few astronauts that went ahead and said he wanted to be a command module pilot and literally wrote the book uh, as far as what to do when things go wrong. And uh, um, so he was actually the, the the right man for that particular mission. Jim Lovell talked about that specifically. He said, you know, I just want to point out that the movie, um, you know, had its dramatic license. Jack Swigert did not have to spend the entire mission earning his stripes, so to speak, um, as the movie portrayed. They had every confidence in him when they launched that he was going to fulfill his duties and do his job, and he did so. And Jim Lovell said it three or four times. 
he was a definite player and the reason why they made it home as well. Indeed. Um, did Fred Hayes elaborate as to why he was not, you know, all that thrilled with the way he was portrayed, or, or did he just, he just, just let a sleeping dog by? I'm just curious. Someone else on another one of the buses had an engineer at the time who, during their tour of the launch pad, he was the MC. He was explaining that when he actually saw the movie, the premiere of Apollo 13, for the first time, he was sitting next to Fred Hayes, who I guess by the end of the movie was doing a slow burn. Because okay. he said, I was never that sick. The movie portrayed him as this sort of weak and useless player, that he was sort of along for the ride. Um, and he was, you know, again, another essential player as to why they got home. But um, the movie does show a scene about how um, Fred Hayes kept kept hitting that cabin repress valve. Right, yes. And, and that happened. He did play yes, that joke indeed. on Jim and Jack a few times and Jim Lovell did talk about how um, when he heard the bang he looked at Fred Hayes and Fred Hayes looked white as a ghost so he knew that he wasn't playing the joke on him at that point something bad had happened so and and Gina just out of curiosity if somebody wanted to learn more about the scholarship program uh, where would they go they can go right to the website astronautscholarshipfoundation.org all right, and that link will be placed in the information for this show. And with that, I believe we are finished for this evening. So, once again, thank you everybody for listening, and thank you for joining us as well, Gene McCulka. Always a pleasure, Sawyer. Thanks so much. Not a problem. Thank you, Gina Hurley. Anytime, Sawyer. And thank you, Mark Ratterman. And we're off. Hey, exactly. We are off. So, once again, thank you for listening. Be sure to check us out, send us some comments to our Twitter account at Talking Space, search for us on Facebook and become a friend of ours, or visit our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. So thank you once again, and have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. because of some lines in a speech that inspires to this day. We learn more about Earth from orbit than we can in any other way. Yet we spend and we spend and we spend and we spend On corporate welfare that will never end Programs that waste more than they create Yet we're happy to let NASA deflate So let's hold a bake sale for NASA Show our love for a program that actually works The cookies are sure to be out of this world We could even have Astros as clerks Give folks a chance to learn firsthand Why we need these adventures in space